proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and the regular cast of characters is with me, Chris Santola and Zach hey. Fisher. Hey. So why don't you guys give just a real quick update of things that have been going on in your life. Uh, for me, um, this past week, I was out of town, and so I handed the reins of my Sunday school class because I didn't just want to. I just I didn't want to just abandon it and be like, yeah, whatever happens happens. I know God's sovereign, but <laughs> um, I did want to try to come up with a plan. So I actually gave it uh, to a younger student who. Okay, so you know we're doing that preaching group. Um, there's there's only two people in that entire group that have never taught or preached before. And so one of them, he, he's, he's, he's only 18. His name's Cameron. If he's listening, what's up, Cameron? <laughs> He'll be thrilled. Anyway, um, I, I, I let him have the opportunity to teach, and it's, we're going through Romans, so he's, he's hitting Romans 10, which is kind of difficult. Um, but he's, he's a sharp kid, and I gave him my Doug Moo commentary, so he should be all set. He should be fine then. So, but he's, he's excited about that, and I'm excited for him to teach for the first time. Cool. Chris? I've really just been working on a few things on the side of worship and liturgy, just uh, some new songs and expanding a little bit of what we've been doing in uh, in liturgy just to involve kind of more of the congregation in uh, in what's taking place in our Lord's Day services. And so uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun kind of working on some of that stuff. We here at First Prez have been trekking through uh, Genesis, and it's been kind of exciting to see. This is now our third year. We, we do uh, different segments in Genesis. Uh, our first section was Genesis 1 through 11. We did, we called it the beginnings, and then we did 12 through like 24 or something like that, and we called that the promise. And, and now we picked up um, this, this third section we call the inheritance, which focuses on Isaac and Jacob. And of course, the last year, which will be next year, we'll do uh, Joseph. So we've broken it up, and then after we finish that segment, we do a New Testament book. So we're we're in the thick of Genesis right now, and just uh, having a blast, kind of learning how the gospel is everywhere in Genesis, man. Cool. Oh, fun. So let's pick up our conversation on covenants. What are some other areas we think that people sometimes have? Mi- I gave I gave a couple. Um, the Holy Spirit. What are some other ways in which people have maybe a slanted view of the new covenant. Um, I'll tell you something that we would all reject would be the idea of like replacement theology. Yeah. Where you've got, and then that's usually coming from, that term is usually coming from dispensationalists who will look at uh, reformed Christians and say, well, you guys are, you guys are just casting aside national Israel. And you say that, well, that was, that was back then. And then now it's different. And so now the church is God's chosen people. And so we have to be careful when we explain our view that we don't sound that way uh, because that's not what we believe. Right. We believe that God has always had his remnant throughout the ages. We believe that Gentiles are grafted in, right? But it's always those that are made righteous through faith that have always been God's elect, regardless if it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so, you know, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, that's why this was such a big issue to me of the, the nature of true Israel and why that was such a huge turning point for me 
in my own theology was, uh, you know, from the dispensational standpoint, there is just Israel, and there then there's the church, who is uh, really this this group that fills this parenthesis in God's redemptive right. plan. And we would say, no, no, no. Um, there has always been a true Israel, a spiritual Israel, and you know, and whenever anyone talks about replacement theology, I said, no, no, I don't believe in replacement theology. I believe in fulfillment theology. Uh, I believe that Christ came as the true Israel, and that we in Him are made true Israel, both Jew and Gentile. I I actually just taught. It's funny that you brought up Romans nine because I just taught on that chapter this past Sunday morning, and we talked about that that very thing. And most people in my in my Sunday school class aren't real up to speed with like the nuance or like the differences between dispensational theology and covenantal theology. Like we haven't really gotten there yet. Um, but I, I tried to make sure that I explained that very clearly to them that, look, it says right here at the beginning of Romans nine, that not, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And well, what on earth does that mean? You know what I'm saying? And Paul, right. Paul is trying to answer the question, why do some of these Jews not believe? And it has to do with the idea of election. But yeah, that's, that's a huge concept. And, and we do get criticized. I, I remember hearing um, Kim Riddlebarger, you guys know Kim Riddlebarger, talking mm-hmm. about that. He, he, people would call him uh, anti-Semitic and things like that for his, his different writings. And he's got a book on, on millennialism, and he talks a lot about that in there, that we reject the idea that uh, national Israel is cast off. The gospel still goes out to Jews today. And anyone, yeah. anyone who uh, has faith in Christ is received, you know? And so, yeah, we just got to be careful. Well, and there's even there's even good argument for Romans chapter eleven, where it talks about the um, what what, we'll, what I'll call a revival under the Jewish people. Yeah, that argument. I know some have, have differing opinions on this. I sat under some good professors in in my um, covenant reform schools that 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 taught, hey, there's nothing that says there won't be a revival of Jewish people, but it's them coming to Christ, just like there's revival in Asia or right. revival in Africa. Um, there's these different types of, of movements, but it's the Spirit of God being poured out. It's not a nationalistic right. thing, and we need to keep that right. always in mind. I had a, a discussion with a dispensational friend some time ago. I say discussion. It was more of a debate. But, <laughs> it was uh, a throwdown. <laughs> we, it was a throwdown. And we were going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I brought it down to that issue. I said, do you believe that unbelieving ethnic Jews are the people of God? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, in that case, we have nothing more to discuss. <laughs> um, I, I don't see how that kind of a view could be compatible with what the Scripture teaches, that uh, the, the people of God are those who are found in Christ. What do you, I mean, what do you do with Galatians 3? What do you do with Romans 4 that clearly say those who believe have the same faith as Abraham? Right. That, that's the distinctive. Uh, Paul clearly says not all of Israel is Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a, a clear... A boundary set that it is um, a, a salvific faith right. um, that 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 is necessary. But coming back to some of the nuances, this creates tension when start people start saying, "Well, then who should receive a sign? Um, who should be allowed um, in, in to be to be called part of part of the uh, visible church?" Um, and, and, and in, the, in these nuances between mm-hmm. Presbyterians, Baptists, the Reformed Church, these become 
um, pretty pretty big discussions and at times can become pretty explosive <laughs> in, in, in this regard. So um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was uh, is Section 5 in the Westminster says, this covenant was administered differently in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promise, prophecy, sacrifice, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types of ordinances given to the Jewish people, all foreshadowing Christ. For that time, the covenant administered under the law through the operation of the Spirit was sufficient and effective in instructing the elect and building up their faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of their sin and eternal salvation. This administration is called the Old Testament. Clearly, the salvific factor in that, the object of faith, is the Messiah. Right. Administered through prophecies, administered um, through Paschal Lamb, these these pictures of 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 uh, in types that were given to draw attention, but all the while looking back to that promise in Genesis three fifteen of that He who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Um, obviously, the great manifestation of His uh, coming into the world, the incarnation, and when He does come, He inaugurates something new, something that. Um, that is, as Chris has already said, um, not brand new, but better, as Hebrews uh, makes so mm-hmm. clear. And yeah. why is it better? Because he is the one fulfilling it, and now we know that. And now we see this fulfilled in, in this Messiah, this one who's come, who's living out in an act of obedience on our part, um, even to the cross, uh, as that is his mission. Yeah, And, you know, I think uh, Paul in Galatians... Uh, clarifies some of this that uh, you know that the promises were made those covenant promises there were made to the seed of Abraham not seeds as in many but seed as in one right. who is Christ and uh, <clears throat> which is why we come into the New Testament and we find Paul telling the Corinthians that in Christ all of the promises of God find their yes um, that that they all belong to him. And, you know, sometimes I hear people read that <laughs> and, uh, and they talk of promises very loosely. I'm like, no, no, this is talking about specific covenant promises. All those things you find in the Old Testament all belong to Christ and, and to those who are in him. In the sixth uh, section of chapter seven, at the very end, it says there are not two essentially different covenants of grace, but one and the same covenant under different dispensations. And uh, obviously, there is the idea that the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are both um, displays of God's grace. Both exist. Both um, are, are given. And Christ is the mediator of, of, of that covenant for us. And that's why Hebrews, as you said, is, is so focused on Christ is better than. That's why Paul says so clearly, Jesus is the one we find all the yes of all the promises in. And that has got to be the, the, the focal point. And when people say we, we you know, you're, you're always digging Jesus out of these passages. Right. Um, my, my friend Doug Logan says constantly we need to have a covenant consciousness when we read scriptures. Otherwise, when you read the book of Psalms, you know, without that covenant consciousness, it doesn't make any sense in the sense right. that there isn't the hope that we can have. That covenant consciousness gives us that, mm-hmm. and that's the good news of the gospel. That really changed the way that I read uh, Psalms 
when or the, the yeah the psalms when someone uh told me that every psalm is about christ ultimately and i remember thinking are you serious like that seems too easy like you mean literally every song he's like yep every single psalm and then when you begin to read through them in that in that way it just it's really um eye-opening and again it just changes the way you read those passages it's not just oh here's something that david was going through but you see how David, in a sense, the, yeah, the psalm is about David and something that he and something whatever his circumstance was at that point. But there's an ultimate fulfillment that happens with Christ, which is amazing to to realize for the first time. We would we would be wrong to have this discussion of covenants and not to deal with the signs of the covenant, mm-hmm. right? We we know it's going to go here. We we gotta we gotta roll up our <laughs> sleeves for a minute and say how how do we how do we walk through this and. And, and begin to help people understand our viewpoint. So I'm, I'm going to give each of you a, a few minutes to kind of share why you take the view you do on both of you saying you hold to covenant theology, both of you sharing that this is, this is your perspective. Who has the right to the sign of the covenant? And uh, Zach, I'm going to let you go first and just kind of share with us and, and help the listeners to understand what would traditionally be the Baptist view. Right. So... The, the traditional Baptist view, and this isn't super detailed and nuanced, so it's pretty simple, that one of the things that is new about the New Covenant is that the only members of the New Covenant are elect and are regenerate. Therefore, and, and it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a perfect thing to say that because both people on both sides, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian, are baptizing people who potentially are not. So no, nobody's only baptizing regenerate people. But the Baptist view would be, um, that what is new about the new covenant is that it is only with the elect, and so um, upon people appearing to be elect and professing faith in Christ, which is required <laughs> for salvation, um, we would administer the, the sign of baptism to those people. Um, and so that's that's the traditional Baptist view, and, and it matches with your view of the Lord's table, right? That again, only those that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Profess. Exactly. Yep. So it's the baptism and the Lord's Supper are right administered in the same way. Okay. Christian, want to take a stab at the Reformed view um, for the Dutch Reform and the Presbyterians? Yeah. You know, it really comes down to an issue of uh, your view of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant. And uh, as where our Reformed Baptist brothers, uh, like Zach just said, you know, see a discontinuity between the administration of the sacrament uh, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, the the Presbyterian, the Dutch Reformed uh, would would see a continuity, a greater continuity between the Old and the New in that— that the the children of believers are also included in that. And it goes back to what I just mentioned a bit ago of there being a, uh, what I mentioned as an external element to the covenant that just like under the old covenant, uh, there were people who were part of the nation of Israel, the covenant people who enjoyed all of the, the blessing and benefit of being a part of that yet were not elect. And, but they were still, circumcised, uh, they would still partake in the Passover, um, that as we come to the New Covenant, and we now have the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism, that we would see baptism in particular as corresponding to circumcision under the Old Covenant, baptism in the New Covenant, and that uh, 
we would see that still applied to the children of believers, even though even as a circumcision was under the old covenant. A lot of times, what we, you'll hear people say is, um, "Chris, with your view, and, and, and which is my view as well, um, that that you're allowing them to receive baptism and become baptized members of the church. At what point do they become full members? And for for our traditions, historically." Uh, a student would go through the catechism class and and take it, but it's not the fact that they completed this catechism class; it's that they make a profession of faith, and at that point they're received into membership of, in a sense, of full membership uh, of of the church, and then that usually leads to them to another question, which is, well, if they are baptized as infants do you allow them to take communion? And Chris, how do you often respond to that? I respond to that by saying no. <laughs> and I know those are, uh, there, there are those amongst uh, the Reformed camp who, uh, who practice pedo communion. Um, I would say no, and typically my, uh, my response is, is that the arguments that our Reformed Baptist brothers would use against, uh, against pedo baptism do apply when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is something uh, that is specific for the believer. Um, it is to be guarded, um, it, or as we talk about, we, you know, we fence the table, um, <laughs> that it is not for the unregenerate person, but that we don't see those same restrictions placed around the sacrament of baptism. The restrictions you're referring to are from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul warns them to examine themselves because some have been uh, made sick and, and, and some have even died right. because they've taken in properly. Right. And you're saying we don't see those same, um, those same guidelines with... When it comes down to also the, uh, the, the purpose or what it is that is being expressed in each of those sacraments. I mean, they are different sacraments, uh, but both speaking to different things. And and when we look at and and we look at um, infant baptism, we would say we obviously tie it to circumcision, the sign the, and seal that was given to Abraham. Abraham ha- was a was a believer who was circumcised, so he had right. believer circumcision, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and then his children had infant circumcision. Um, so to kind of put it in, in perspectives, and we don't see. Correct me if. I mean, this is my understanding. I don't want to speak for the Dutch reformer on the other side of the room here, but but as you walk through the uh, understanding, we don't see anywhere where it was told don't don't include children anymore. As as the sign changed in the new covenant, which was now water baptism, Jesus commands the baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the sign changed. Who was to receive it didn't change. So we still see a larger covenant community, and obviously within that larger covenant community, there are those who are uh, the true believers within that, just like there was in ancient Israel. Not all of Israel is Israel. Uh, they wandered in the wilderness. Many were non-believers who never entered the promised land. And, and the same is true, we would say, in the New Testament and in that, in, that, in that walk. Would you agree with me, Chris, in the way I'm describing that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's why those warning passages we mentioned earlier— uh, you know, the Hebrews 6, 10, Romans 11, uh, I think makes sense to us in that 
in, in that understanding. Uh, it's interesting because I do have one friend who who agrees with me totally on the warning passages. He goes, absolutely, totally agree with you that that's what it's talking about, uh, the relationship to the covenant and so on. He goes, but I still uh, don't believe in infant baptism because I just don't believe that that's what baptism is. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but one of the one of the key arguments that's often thrown around in these debates or these discussions is the Colossians 2 passage. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm talking about verses 11 and 12, where it talks about the circumcision and then baptism are side by side. And a lot of, of my Baptist friends will often bring and say, but Aaron, the issue there isn't about circumcision or baptism. It's about a circumcision of the heart. Is that correct, Zach? Mm-hmm. That's, that's and, and, and where Chris and I would say, absolutely it is, but we agree with the Baptist here that the, the baptism or circumcision was an example of, of an outward, outward sign of an inward change. <laughs> and so the very fact that, that when, when Abraham received it, he was a believer, his children also had access to it, but that sign was given to him as he came in. So that when we look at the book of Acts and you see all these baptisms and people say, what must I do to be, you know, to be baptized, right? Believe. It's because these are these are Gentiles who are coming to the faith and now receiving this sign for the very first time, which then brings the next argument up about, well, where do we see in Scripture where children were baptized? Well, there's two episodes in Acts, uh, and, and I would stress the fact that out of all the baptisms that are mentioned in Acts, those there's only a few that actually have children present, and mm-hmm. in those you have the baptism of those children. And in one of those episodes... We're not told that the children had faith, but that they were received baptism. And I know that's an argument of silence, and people say, um, you know, come on, give me more ironclad evidence. And I would say, well, the whole Old Testament is that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that evidence. But what we're doing in this discussion for the listener is trying to help you see these viewpoints so that as you're wrestling with them through this doctrine of covenant, you're seeing that these signs and seals matter, they should be taken seriously, and there yep. are consistent arguments for why, whether you're Baptist or you're Presbyterian or you're Dutch Reform, we hold the views we do. Right. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of to bring it back around to the main subject for today of covenant, uh, you know, we can go back and forth uh, with, uh, you know, <laughs> I would go back and forth with my Baptist brethren on this one. And, you know, we're going to look at certain texts, like you just said, Colossians 2, the household baptisms in Acts. And, you know, there's arguments from silence on both sides. Um, Neither of us are going to deny that uh, professing believers ought to be baptized. I mean, it really is coming down to that issue of uh, should the children of professing believers, the infant children of professing believers, be baptized. And the the paedo-baptist has got arguments uh, that they're going to bring up from different passages, and the uh, the uh, Credo Baptist is going to have their arguments from different passages. And like I said, some of those are arguments from silence. Some are good arguments on both sides. Some are not such good arguments on both sides. What it really ultimately comes down to is your understanding of the nature of covenant. So here's here's my question for you. And if you have a, a really great rebuttal then I'm, I'm out of ammo but because i don't know this well enough but my genuine question is um as far as what's new about the new covenant w- w- well a couple questions would you say that from your perspective that the new covenant is mixed of believers and non-believers or would you say that the new covenant only contains the elect 
Yeah, I think I think the expression of the the just as in it, when we're talking about we 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 had to define terms when we talk about the the true seed, the true believing seed has always been true Israel. Okay. Period from the very beginning all the way down. But that is included and carried with it um, their children, and as they've walked. And this is the, to answer this question, and, and this is one question I often ask people in discussions. Do you teach your children to pray? Right. Why? Why should the only prayer you should be teaching your children to pray is the sinner's prayer? Why do you do that? Because you obviously believe there's an importance that they have in a relationship with God that somebody outside the church doesn't have because you wouldn't go up to your neighbor next door and say hey first thing I want to do is teach you how to pray you'd probably say well if I asked you how you're going to evangelize well I'll take them through the gospel of John Mm -hmm. right but that's not what we do and the reason is I'm trying to make this point that we all acknowledge that the true seed is is believing Israel but the question is does this also carry with it their children and, 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 and if so, we do have a responsibility in teaching our children the doctrines of faith, mm-hmm. um, to raise them to know uh, that the, there is one God only, the living and true God, uh, the great Shema um, aspects of, of the heritage, the confessions that have been handed down. And so I think that's a legitimate question that you ask, and I, and I, and I would agree with you that Yes, there's always only true Israel, but it has always carried with it those who are connected to true Israel. Right. Um, and so there is a, and we all, whether you're Baptist or you're Presbyterian, we all treat our children differently than we treat the world. What, I mean, does everybody agree yeah. with me on that? Yeah. Chris, mm-hmm. would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, what, definitely. And the question is why? And I think it's because we understand the covenant nature of, and, and it also goes back to federal headship. Um, and it goes back to language like 1 Corinthians, um, when it, where it talks about the unbelieving spouse. It, it, and one of the big things that did it for me, to be quite honest, is who who is that referring to in Hebrews chapter 6 that has tasted and seen and fallen away? Because none of us in this room believe an, a, a, a person can lose their salvation. Right the question then becomes, who is that group of people? And obviously they've tasted and seen the goodness of God. They, they've tasted and seen what it is to be in co- covenant community with him, but yet they have denied, denied him and turned away from him. And so who is that group of people? And so you're asking good questions. I hope we're asking good questions. Yeah. Um, and, and in this discussion, um, obviously as confessional brothers, we have our understandings of where we fall but we also, um, in the hallway, want to be able to say, hey, this is my brother in the Lord, and moving forward. I do have a, a question, too, that I want to ask you guys. It's on the other sacrament, the sacrament of, of the Lord's table. And, and that specifically comes down to the idea that when we look at covenant throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about it, he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, it always seems to be meal associated or, or food associated with the covenant. And it's, it's interesting that I think we miss that, and we end up treating the Lord's table 
as just this quick remembrance thing. Even in Presbyterian circles where we have a high view of the Lord's table, it becomes a quickly, let's just stop for a minute and remember, and we forget what it is we're really to be focusing on, which is the covenant renewal um, that, it, that, it, that it offers in a sense of, of, of taking place there. Just, just your guys' comments on that. It's been something that's been on my mind lately a lot as I've been working through this. I think um, uh, one, one of the bad arguments for people that uh, people that want to say, well, we don't, we don't want like we don't want to do the Lord's Supper like quite as often because it will like not become as special, <laughs> you know, like if we do it every week or whatever. Um, and and I'm not a hundred percent sure where I stand on as far as how often, but all that aside, um, without grasping like you said, Aaron, the nature of what's actually taking place. That yes, um, in, in I mean, in, even in Jesus's own words, we are doing it in remembrance of Him, um, but in a in a certain sense, um, we are receiving grace through the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, I know I know that you in more reform circles uh, that's terminology that they use a lot more than Baptist circles. So maybe you want to kind of explain what that really means to as the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. But, but you believe that, right? Yeah, that we that we are um, partaking. Of the Lord's Supper by faith, there's mm-hmm. there's a spiritual feeding that takes place. Right. Um, the sacraments are given as a means of grace to us in the church, and um, that's why I do get frustrated when people say, "Well, we you know we want it to be special, so we only bring it out you know once in a great while." And and we're all fighting those battles. And I and it doesn't say how often; it just says as often mm-hmm. <laughs> as you do this in remembrance of me. But, but you're right. I, I think there is something that's missing because we've turned it into just something that's just, it's empty, and it's not empty. Chris, you want to speak to it? No, I, I agree with you that I think that there's more going on there as we understand the sacrament as a means of grace, uh, and that there is contained within that an, an element of fellowship, um, that as we take of that, that we are coming together as the body of Christ— uh, to partake together uh, of he who ha- has given his body for us, and that we are coming together to be uh, partakers in his blood together. And so in that, there is a, a, pu- a public uh, uh, kind of a, a partaking and a unifying and, um, and feasting together upon Christ. And uh, and I do think sometimes that, you know, in trying to move away from the ideas of transubstantiation and that sort of thing, that uh, the pendulum swings too far to where we treat it as almost just sort of a a ritual of remembrance and don't acknowledge the the substance of the sacrament. Hmm. That's good. That's good. The idea of like. Being being told by Paul in First Corinthians eleven that we're supposed to be examining ourselves, like, because uh, we talk about the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, but just the fact that like I can't, like if there's something, and this has happened before, like if there's something between me and my wife where we're arguing or, or I have something against her or she has something against me, the fact that we're like forced, like by this passage to confess to each other before we partake of the table, you know, and examine ourselves and make sure that I don't have anything against her and I haven't sinned against her and not repented of it and, and sought her forgiveness, that is a huge. Uh, benefit to our marriage, you know, and that's a huge, 
way that we're sanctified through the Lord's Supper is just being forced to look, uh, examine ourselves and make sure that we have right relationships with, you know, not even just our spouses, but fellow believers. You know, when we're harboring bitterness or something against someone, um, it's just a blessing that through the Lord's Supper, that's the means by which we are going to one another and confessing to one another and, and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. Any other closing thoughts on this doctrine of covenant? Well, I would say this is something that is really essential to a right understanding of the Bible. Like you mentioned earlier, that uh, this is this is the skeleton of Scripture. And uh, apart from seeing this, it is going to be very difficult to pull together a cohesive understanding of salvation in the Old Testament, the New Testament— uh, and understanding how all of that works apart from a, a even just a basic understanding of the covenants as they're expressed throughout scripture it's it's something for me that is um really thrilling to like learn about and read more about and and um obviously we have great unity in a lot of this discussion um and then as far as our differences go like i'm still learning with all of that as well and so it's something for me that it's, it's just always a joy to learn. And so a lot of times when you talk about different areas of theology, uh, we can be encouraged to be reminded of the same things over and over. Um, but when, it, when you're actually learning something new, it's always, it's always thrilling for me. So this whole idea of covenant theology is something that I'm excited to dive further into and learn more about my own perspective and everything. I would say if, if you're new to covenant theology, <clears throat> understand that this can be a total um, worldview shift. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's it's like time. it's like knocking down one of the bottom tiers of cards. It really is, yeah. And it's going to force you to restack some things as you begin to rebuild that worldview. But it's as you've already stated, Zach, it's it's a good thing to do. It's good for all of us to review and to constantly make sure that our understanding of these things are scriptural, biblical, um, truthful. Using all the same different words I can to describe that. Um, because we don't want to just believe a system of doctrine because it's it's the in thing to believe right. or because our favorite author believes it. We want to believe it because it's, it's what Scripture teaches, but it is the framework that will um, send you into a, uh, a cohesive, unified understanding of the Bible. Um, and that's the most beautiful piece, I think, of, of, of covenant theology yeah. that it offers. So, Amen to that. Gentlemen, thank you for your time, and to our listeners, look forward to uh, uh, being with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com, and be sure to like our Facebook page.